This episode was first broadcast earlier this year in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today our guest is writer Asar Nafisi. We'll talk about her new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. In this book, she asks, what is the connection between political strife in our daily lives and the way we meet our enemies on the page in fiction? How can literature, through its free exchange, affects politics? Uh, drawing on her experiences as a woman and voracious reader living in the Islamic Republic of Iran, her life as an immigrant in the United States, and her role as literature professor in both countries, she crafts an argument for why, in a genuine democracy, we must engage the enemy and how literature can be a vehicle for doing so. Azar Nafisi is author of the multi-award winning New York Times bestseller Reading Lolita in Tehran, as well as Things I've Been Silent About, The Republic of Imagination, That Other World. Uh, formerly a fellow at Johns Hopkins University's Foreign Policy Institute, she's taught at Oxford and several universities in Tehran, and she lives in Washington, D.C. Azar Nafisi, uh, such a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, before we jump into, into the book, um, uh, Ukraine's on all of our minds. What I'm sure we'll talk yeah. about that's going on. I just want to get your general thoughts up front here. Well, you know, I am reminded of Henry James uh, during World War One that he uh, uh, strongly opposed. Uh, he writes to a letter. Uh, he writes in a letter to. Um, a friend uh, that how to resist the war, he says, feel, feel all you can. And uh, every day when I watch the news about you, uh, Ukraine and listen to it, I remind myself that I have to feel, feel all I can uh, in empathy with what is going on in Ukraine. But it reminds us here, over here in the United States, how in a, thousand, a country that is thousands of miles away from us, people whose language we don't speak and whom we don't know, democracy in that country can affect the state of democracy in our country. So it shows us how much we belong to the world and how much we need to know about the world and to empathize with those uh, who, like us, um, want a democratic and free society. Mm. Uh, you, you, you talk about feel, you know, feeling that empathy. Um, I don't know. That you, I think you write about this in the book, and I, I we all feel it, too. too. Maybe there's a deficit of empathy, in, at least in the United States, where, where you write the word... We're more into being entertained than empathizing and engaging. That is exactly, that is what worried me when I returned to United States in 1997. Um, even then, you could feel how um, empathy is ebbing away, is fading, you know, uh, because of the way we look at imagination and ideas, because of the way we look at literature, arts, and music, you know. We need them only for entertainment. We want to become more and more comfortable 
comfortable. We become more and more complacent. And uh, great fiction um, is always disturbing. Great fiction is always about those things we don't know about. It's a form of knowledge of life which leads to change in life, and we don't want any change. Uh, I, I keep reminding people that looking at other parts of the world, uh, like Iran, for example, and now Ukraine, people giving their lives for, for the freedoms we take for granted here shows how far, how erroneous uh, our perception of life is. You write, uh, you have a section on, um, on war. You say the other century yeah. has been uh, you know, full of war. Um, and you say that um, you know, the great writing can expose dehumanization and hatred that are intrinsic parts of war. And not even war, dehumanization has become part of politics in the U.S. But I wonder if you talk about, about dehumanization and war. Yeah, that that is um, uh, the exact. Uh, that is where the danger lies. When we reach a point where people who are different from us or who are opposed to us are no more human beings, uh, they, they, we cut all empathy and all means of communication with them. Um, and as you said, as you mentioned, this is not only of uh, totalitarian societies, but of totalitarian trends within democracies, and we see it today in the United States. You see that all of a sudden, um, press that is not agreeable to us becomes uh, uh, enemy of the people. Uh, and, and, and we, you know, we dare uh, speak on behalf of a whole people. Um, and and uh, we, what we use is not what fiction uses. Fiction goes for understanding. Uh, in fiction, every character has a voice. Even the villain has his, own, his or her own voice. And therefore, uh, fiction puts us within a mul- multiple uh, experiences of these different voices and allows us to understand them and based on that understanding made our, make our judgment. This is the exact opposite of this eliminationist um, form of mindset uh, that uh, has already defined you, has already drawn the lines, and he, he's always wearing the white hat, and you always are wearing the black hat. That is exact opposite of it. And uh, in my segment on war, I talk about the dangers of such mentality, what it can do to a democratic society. You uh, you write that uh, in a dictatorship, totalitarian society, the you talked about multiple voices in literature, right, and nuance. Yeah. But but in a dictatorship, the the only voice is the dictator's, right? He drowns out everything else. Yeah, it drowns out everything else, and uh, uh, it defines you. Uh, like when um, the Islamic uh, uh, regime came to power, the first thing that they did was eliminate those segments of society um, that signified the difference. Uh, they attacked women, minorities, and culture. And uh, uh, 
tried to create, tried to deprive Iran of its history. The first thing they do, they confiscate the history. They say that things um, are not the way they are now, but the things were the way uh, we say they were. So they come in the name of uh, a whole people, a whole culture. And in that name, they um, silence all authentic voices. And, and you see this again um, in America, uh, this distortion of history and um, wanting to make America great again. Uh, so uh, under these uh, uh, seductive uh, slogans, they in fact impose a uniform way of looking at life. You're right uh, that the problem in America is that too little attention is paid to writers. Uh, you know, they're silenced not by torture, jail, but by indifference and negligence. Because that, that's our responsibility, right? That's on us. Yes, you know, uh, I talk to people about what's happening in um, Iran, and they all feel very sympathetic and tell me, oh, what can we do for them? They don't realize that it is not just doing something for them that you should definitely do, uh, support their fight for human rights. But at the same time, you should be doing something for yourself. Uh, that um, uh, there is, uh, Saul Bellow used to say, as you mentioned, that in totalitarian societies like the Soviet Union, death is naked, violence is naked. We know where we stand with them, and we know that they are, uh, um, they are out to kill us. Uh, but uh, in a democratic society, what threatens us, he says, is our sleeping consciousness and our atrophy of feeling. Um, a society that gives itself to its comforts, that constantly says it doesn't want to be disturbed, that sees art and literature as menace because they dis some of them disturb their peace. And James Baldwin used to say, artists are here to disturb the peace. Um, uh, this is, uh, well, I don't know if you cannot be disturbed um, through reading the stories in great books. Uh, then how can you uh, live up to the disturbances that life offers you all the time? I mean, reality is disturbing. It's ambiguous, it's complex, and imaginative knowledge teaches us how to deal with these ambiguities and complexities and paradoxes. Um, of course, uh, one step up from that, you know, our indifference is a book banning, and there, there's been a recent upsurge in book banning here in yeah. the United States. You wrote a very moving piece in the Washington uh, Post about book banning. I, I, I just can't stop thinking about your student. I can't remember how to, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Az Azie? Razie. Yeah. C could you tell us about her? Because she's an example of what literature uh, can do. Yes, this is about a student of mine whose story uh, has stayed with me over decades, and I just can't um, forget her. And I decided that as long as she's remained so vivid in my memory, I'm going to be talking about her. Her name was Rosier, 
And uh, I met her the first year I returned to Iran from the States after I got my degree. And she was a student of mine. And um, uh, she came from a very poor family. Her mother was a cleaning woman, and her father was dead. And they were both, uh, her, she and her mother, uh, were... Um, uh, religious, uh, they uh, uh, she wore uh, the full veil and all that, and uh, uh, she fell in love in my class with Henry James. She so much admired the independent women in his novels, especially Catherine Sloper in um, Washington Square and Daisy Miller in a book by, uh, in the novel of Daisy Miller. Uh, she kept talking to me about uh, their independence-minded, that they were ready, uh, as in the case of Daisy Miller, to give their lives, but to um, do what they think is right, uh, not be afraid uh, of being right. And once she told me that I think I'm in love, she meant with mm -hmm. Henry James. Anyway, I left that university, and I didn't see her for some years. And um, I was now teaching at another university where one of my former students visited me. And she told me that she also, during the Cultural Revolution, was arrested and jailed for a while. For a while. And uh, she said in, the, in her cell she met Razier. And she told me, you know, she talked about Henry James. I talked about Great Gatsby. We had a lot of fun. And I couldn't imagine being at death door in the, that uh, terrifying jail and thinking of Henry James and Scott Fitzgerald and having fun. And then um, she told me that, uh, do you know, you know that Razier was executed? I didn't know that Razier was executed. And it just shattered me. I mean, I, I can still not imagine her. That small, uh, slim girl with big black eyes um, being taken out into the yard and executed. Um, and uh, I asked myself, uh, well, Henry James didn't save Razier uh, from being killed, uh, he couldn't save her. So what did he give her? He didn't, he couldn't prevent death, but he could give life. He could help make her life more worth living. And uh, that is why uh, in concentration camps, um, in worse, under worse circumstances, people turn to literature, art, and music, because when they despair of everything that life good, that, uh, that life has to offer, when they despair of being human, when humanity is so degraded, they turn to those works that celebrate humanity and life, celebrate to the best achievements of humanity, which is um, uh, literature and art and music and philosophy. Yeah, that's, thank you for telling Razia's story. That's it's just uh, I, I can't get her out of my mind either. That's uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> that is great. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit more about those those young people, young women, I think mostly. You, you recount this in reading Lolita in, in Tehran. Um, this, you know, uh, your subtitle in this book, uh, Subversive Power of Literature, uh, totalitarian regimes are nervous about, um, you know, literature, right? Yeah, that is the one thing that I kept asking myself uh, while I was living in the Islamic Republic. That, you know, uh, writers have no weapons. Their only weapons are their words. And how is it that these people would just words are so... Um, feared by some of the most powerful men in the world who have all sorts of weapons arsenals and who can destroy a whole country at the blink of an eye, and yet they are worried about these writers to such an extent that they're prepared not only to jail and censor and harass them, but to kill them. That showed to me how powerful, in fact, fiction is, and that these people, whether they live in democracies and cancel and censor and try to ban books, or they live in theocracies or autocracies like the Islamic Republic, they use violence not out of strength but out of fear. They feel weak in the face of uh, uh, these words, because the words reveal the truth, and truth is always dangerous. Once you know it, you cannot remain silent. You have to speak up or you become complicit. And that scares, you, you notice, both in the world today, both in Putin's world, and um, over here in this country, uh, the former president and his uh, followers and supporters, they live on lies. Lies become central to their survival. And uh, fiction, with its focus on the truth, becomes an enemy. You write in the same op-ed piece, uh, I'll just quote this sentence, or part of a sentence, in recent years we have seen how truth is replaced by lies and how dangerous a cultivated ignorance can be. I just want to bring in here, I, I was reading recently an uh, interview in the New York Times. Uh, they were interviewing Soviet-born British journalist Peter Pomerantsev. Uh, he, he, he's talking about propaganda here. I just want, uh, this struck me, and it I, I think this applies here. I want to get your reaction. This is what Pomerantsev says. Uh, he says, Russian propaganda under Putin is actually not about mobilizing people. It's largely about making people passive with the use of conspiratorial propaganda. And with this use of disinformation just to confuse the heck out of people, it's all about keeping population passive. And uh, that, that's what dictatorships do, right? Yes, exactly. That is what they do. They make them passive. They make them uh, passive uh, both through propaganda and through the fear that they instill in them. They feel also helpless that um, they, 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 at some point, they become passive to the point that they allow the state to decide everything for them. 
And uh, we see this in the war in Ukraine. I was watching the other day uh, all these Russians holding the flag and cheering uh, uh, Putin and his policies and uh, uh, wondering um, about uh, the the very same thing, that how this uh, propaganda alongside of fear, they go together. I mean, there's propaganda, but there's always the threat and you notice when he talks about uh, uh, the enemies of uh, the Russian people in Russia and how they will be treated, um, he uses that alongside of the propaganda, and that is recipe for passivity. Well, let's take a break. Uh, we are talking with uh, the writer Azar Nafisi. Uh, she's the author of many books, including uh, the New York Times bestseller Reading Lodita in Tehran. The new book is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to have the writer Azar Nafisi. On the program today, she's the author previously of uh, many books, including New York Times bestselling uh, Reading Lolita in Tehran. The new book is Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Uh, so, Sarna, if you see, I wonder if uh, I could have you read just the first page of the introduction. Outlines the how this began. The first page of the introduction? Yes. Okay. Well, it begins with a quote from Salman Rushdie. When a reader falls in love with a book, it leaves its essence inside him, like radioactive fallout in an arable field. And after that, there are certain crops that will no longer grow in him, while other stranger, more fantastic growths may may occasionally be produced. On October 8th, 2016, I sat down and wrote a letter to my father, who had been dead for 12 years. I know the date because I noted in my... Looks like we've uh, perhaps lost... ...between Billy Bush and Donald Trump, in which Trump boasted about grabbing women's genitals... During his lifetime, it was not unusual for me to exchange letters with my father. He first wrote me when I was four in a diary addressed only to me, which after his death I discovered among his letters and diaries. I first wrote to him when I was six while he was in America studying. I jotted down a few words on scraps of paper torn from my notebook, addressing him as Baba John, the equivalent of dearest dad in Persian and signing off the letter with Baba's daughter. We wrote not just when one of us was traveling, but also while we lived in the same country, even when we lived in the same house. Should I go on? or? Uh, yeah, maybe end right there. Um, okay. So um, that's extraordinary. First letter when you were four in, in that diary, and then you wrote back uh, when you were six. That's, that's quite the treasure, that, uh, that yes. relationship through letters uh, with your dad. Um, uh, last week, my brother uh, had been going through his, my father's papers, and he found um, a, a letter exchange between he and I uh, exactly when I was six. And uh, my father has written me that uh, uh, 
now grown-up girl, and I knew how to read and write. So while he's away in America studying, uh, maybe he could translate uh, quotations every day from uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And I read those quotations uh, aloud and keep all of them until he comes back, and maybe we will together turn it into a book. And the first quotation was about the dangers of jealousy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I had um, this relationship and communication through storytelling and through letter writing. Uh, so tell me about your father. Give, give us some, some brush strokes there of, uh, about your, your father. Well, he was very tender, and one of the things that I appreciated uh, in him so much was that he never treated um, he never treated my brother and I as as he always treated my brother and I as as his equals. The way he would talk to us, the tone of his voice was always um, uh, as if we were just a very good friend. Uh, and uh, uh, that gave us a sense of confidence in ourselves, which was great. Um, he also was a very courageous person uh, in his public life. He became um, the youngest mayor of uh, the capital of Iran's uh, Tehran. And uh, he was a very popular mayor. Uh, but he was not a good politician uh, because he uh, stood on his principles and would not compromise. And he got um, uh, his enemies became two of the most powerful men in Iran at the time. The prime minister and the minister of interior became his um, first enemies. And uh, they trumped up some charges and put him in a temporary jail. they told him that if he apologizes and regrets the way he had been behaving, or, uh, behaving he will be let off. But he said that he wanted um, uh, his day in court, and he wanted to defend himself and be exonerated. So they kept him in jail without a trial for four years. And afterwards, when they let him go, um, there was a trial, and he did defend himself. He began his defense with a quotation from our great epic poet Ferdowsi, who lived a thousand years ago, and his defense is dispersed with references to world literature, uh, not just Iran. Uh, Anyway, to make this long story short, he then uh, was exonerated of all charges except insubordination. And I really loved it. I would, my brother and I would go around and say he's guilty of insubordination uh, until they dropped that charge as well. Uh, but that's just an example that affected our lives a great deal. Uh, and uh, the way he acted um, in jail, he learned a, a new language and uh, he painted, wrote poetry and uh, resisted through writing poetry, not just to us. He wrote to his family and his friends, but also to his interrogators and his enemies. 
and they didn't know what to do with him or with his poems. Mm. Um, you, you say in the book uh, about your grandchildren, you say, I want to provide them with a portable home like the one my father gave me. What, tell me about that portable home. Well, when I was 13, my parents decided to send me to uh, England to continue my studies. And it was one of my most painful uh, memories because all of a sudden uh, I was uh, bereft of the uh, love and companionship of my parents and the friends, the people I loved most, um, the language I, uh, that was my mother language. All of these were taken away from me. And uh, uh, I had... Uh, a lot, I felt I resented uh, and uh, uh, was very sad for a long time. But I learned at that age that uh, everything that is dear to you in terms of the material world can be taken away from you. But there is one thing that remains, and that is the portable world of stories and memories. And I took with me two uh, books by our classic writers, uh, poets, uh, Hafez and Rumi, and uh, the feminist uh, poet, uh, Furuq Farrokhzad. I took them to England with me. And every night before sleep, I would read them. And uh, they put me back into Iran. Uh, Those portable world of poetry uh, were the best that Iran had to offer anyway. And anyway, uh, I learned how to live in England and later on in the United States, also through stories. Before I visited England and United States, I had visited them uh, through their uh, beautiful uh, books, especially fiction. And um, that is how I made my home uh, in U.S and uh, England, and uh, even later on under the Islamic Republic. What did your father say later? I think you, you know, he would write about, the, about this time in his life, about being imprisoned, about, uh, and, and, and how that colored his perceptions afterwards of engaging, especially the, the role of literature. Yeah, he, you know, uh, the amazing thing about him uh, was that when he was in jail, uh, he, and he had no access to uh, his home, never mind to the world, uh, he became more and more immersed in the affairs of the world. He read voraciously. He would wake up at five in the morning and he would walk around the room um, uh, at to do for miles doing exercises and and he would spend all his time reading and writing and painting and so um, he wanted to not let jail overwhelm him and in order not to let jail overwhelm him he had to create an atmosphere wherein he could um, connect to uh, to the world uh, I uh, in my book at the end of the book in the appendix, I have an open letter father wrote from jail to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he had heard uh, Lyndon Johnson's great society, and uh, he was very much impressed by it, and he wanted to address certain issues with him. He was mesmerized by America, uh, the contradiction at the heart of America, which was uh, 
on one hand, uh, a very free society, freedom of expression everywhere, prosperity, and on the other hand, dire poverty and racism. Uh, racism affected him a great deal. He writes about it in the letter to Johnson in his, and in his memoirs, as well as during the talks that he and I had together. You say that uh, James Baldwin helped helped you to to, yes. to understand how to how to deal with rage and uh, and how not to get lost in that. I guess. Yes, Baldwin uh, had an amazing effect on um, my viewpoints. Uh, he mentions how what worried him, what made him fear most was not just the the racists, the enemies, but how hatred, which he said, hatred that sits on my lap, that worried him even more. And so, you know, the enemy can overwhelm us and destroy us in two ways. One is through physically harassing and jailing and and even killing us, eliminating us. That is one way of doing it. The other way is when we allow it to take over our mind so that we don't think about anything else and we act like our enemy. That is the dangerous thing. Uh, The war in Ukraine uh, showed how this works because you notice that Putin kills children and innocent citizens of Ukraine. What do Ukrainians do? They call on the mothers of the captured Russian soldiers to collect their sons. They refuse to become like Putin. Their war is a defensive war, not an offensive one. And so um, I mention in the book um, uh, one reaction Nancy Pelosi showed to um, um, Trump when he kept calling her crazy Nancy and all sorts of names. She said, I pray for him. And, you know, what could... Trump, how could he react if Nancy Pelosi had said, no, you are crazy? Uh, She would have sunk to the level of Trump, but she refused to go there. And uh, that is how we uh, resist the enemy, by not allowing us to overtake our hearts and minds. And James Baldwin uh, is one of the best people who does this. He's really amazing. I found this interesting. You you quote Lebanese novelist Elias Khoury. Um, oh, yes. He says, an, uh, writing is an act in which you write with your wounds in order to heal your wounds. Yeah, yeah, that was beautiful. And uh, so much of the writing is about wounds, uh, wounds, some of which are invisible. And, and uh, some of the writing, some of art is about the pain that we go through through life. And um, that is why writing is so such an integral part of life. I mean, storytelling has existed since time immemorial, and it has existed not to just um, uh, expose the wounds, but also celebrate the joys of life, both joys and 
and grief uh, uh, are there side by side uh, in the best of fiction. Uh, let's take another break, and we come back. We'll have our final segment with uh, Asar Nafisi. Um, Asar Nafisi is the author of uh, several previous books, including uh, reading Lolita in Tehran, uh, Things I've Been Silent About, The Republic of Imagination, and That Other World. And the latest book is called Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. That is out and available. We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking with the writer Asar Nafisi. Um, she's uh, author previously of Reading Lolita in Tehran, uh, Things I've Been Silent About, Republic of Imagination, That Other World. And the latest book is called Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in, uh, in Troubled uh, Times. Asar Nafisi, I wonder if you could, uh, I wonder if you'd read for us just the, the quotation you have at the very beginning of the book from Edwige Danticat. Oh, yes. It's rich, not Danticat. Um, I'm sorry. I'm looking. Okay. And I, I just sprung that on you, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, it's a, it's this a, is it's great. A, it's a great uh, quotation. Now, when you want it, it's not yeah. there. Okay. <laughs> That's right. It is there. Okay, great. <laughs> Create dangerously for people who read dangerously. This is what I have always thought it meant to be a writer, writing, knowing in part that no matter how trivial your words may seem, someday, somewhere, someone may risk his or her life to read them. And that's, that's exactly what you're talking about in the book, right? Um... Yes. Create dangerously, read dangerously. Uh, and, of course, not only uh, readers who risk, uh, you know, their, their lives, their freedom, but, but writers, of course, and we've talked a bit about this. I noticed uh, from your website that you, you were a keynote speaker last year uh, uh, on the day of the imprisoned writer. Um, oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Um, uh, the, Pen, the organization PEN um, does such a fantastic job of uh, uh, supporting freedom of expression everywhere in the world. I mean, talk about empathy. Uh, and uh, there are quite a few uh, imprisoned writers in the Islamic Republic of Iran right now, so um, I understand uh, the pain and the fear that goes uh, would such harassment and uh, uh, imprisonment. Uh, so I felt um, that it was for a worthy cause. And I noticed from that, um, they say the Freedom to Write Index from 2019 to 2020, uh, we're going the wrong direction. More writers imprisoned you know, from one year to the next. Yeah, yeah, more writers are imprisoned. And um, for those of us in America who think um, writing is just a pastime or reading is just a pastime, uh, all they have to do is to take a look at uh, the number of writers all across the world uh, that have been jailed and harassed, and then maybe they'll change their mind. You know, writers in a democracy um, don't write policies, but they help shape the mindset that makes those policies. 
uh, and that mindset is uh, what is dangerous. I want to read uh, just a couple sentences here. Uh, this is a Sardin FEC in Read Dangerously. Uh, you say, we in this country have lost the art of engaging with the opposition. Then you go on to say, knowing your enemy involves discovering yourself. Democracy depends upon engagement with our adversaries and opponents. It depends upon us being made to think and rethink and assess and reassess our own positions, face both enemies outside of us and the ones within. We've talked early in this hour about we're <laughs> probably not doing so well in this country on that. How can literature help us with that? Well, literature helps us by that through its structure. It helps us. Literature is based on two very important human trends, and we need to pay attention to them. The first is curiosity. I mean, literature, unlike what some of us believe today, literature is not just about us. It is about us in relationship to others. So there is always, always an unknown factor to literature. Um, writing, when you write, you don't know everything you want to write. You have an idea and you, or an experience or a feeling that you want to express, and you discover it as you write about it. And, and the same is true about the process of reading. As you read a book, you become more and more curious and you want to know. So at the heart of literature is imaginative knowledge. And imaginative knowledge is not something that you have today and tomorrow you have your iPhone and you don't need it. Imaginative knowledge is a way of um, uh, connecting to the world, perceiving the world, and changing the world. Uh, so uh, if we take literature as uh, an act of discovery, a desire to appease your curiosity, um, some uh, the mindset that connects you to others, the mindset that... Uh, is about others, then you discover uh, would, uh, uh, empathy. You discover that you need to go under the skin of every character in order to be able to judge. Now, that is where um, this uh, whole point about uh, uh, dealing with enemy comes. Even if you want to win, you need to know your enemy. A good general knows the mind of the enemy in order to navigate it, in order to be able to confront it. And this blindness, this ignorance that we um, are propagating in our uh, society is so dangerous. James Baldwin used to say, ignorance allied with power is the most pernicious um, enemy, enemy of justice. And um, I think that imaginative knowledge is uh, a way of standing up to ignorance that uh, we face today um, in our schools and colleges. I want to uh, read this little passage. You're, in, you're engaging here with your, with your father, as you do. You're writing these letters to your father. And this goes to, um, you know, truth and, and lies, uh, the, the blurring of that intentional in some cases. Yeah. 
Um, and so you're writing in regard to David Grossman's novel, uh, To the End of the Land. So you say, Baba John, I can almost hear you say, but the fictional facts that create Grossman's novel are as important as the real facts. And you reply, you would be right, for in fiction as in reality, we need to experience the facts, in this case through our imagination, in order to understand them. So in, in fiction, we experience the facts. I guess that can be an antidote, I guess, to this assault on truth. Yeah, that, that, that is what fiction does. It, it makes us experience, next to reality, fiction comes closest to exposing to us our hearts and minds. And uh, so uh, facts, facts are important to fiction. They are the clay through that fiction shapes in order to turn them into fictional shapes. And they make visible what is invisible to us in terms of our daily life. Um, you, uh, this really sticks in my mind. You write about uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale. And, yeah. and you, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's, uh, to the effect that you point out that uh, she points out Otherwise, good people, you know, just average uh, people, yeah. um, you know, helping totalitarianism come on just by not paying attention or not resisting. Yes, that is why I say that we have to look at ourselves. We cannot just look at our enemies and blame them. There's plenty of blame to go around, and part of it goes back to ordinary citizens, decent people, good people, and yet um, uh, not resisting or somehow uh, sometimes becoming complicit. Uh, I always remember the scene in Huckleberry Finn where um, uh, Aunt Sally, who is a very nice woman, who is a kind woman, um, uh, Huck has told her that uh, he had an accident, and she says, I hope no one was hurt. And he says, no one but a, an N-word. Um, and she says, oh, I'm glad no one was hurt. So uh, she's an ordinary person. She's a kind person. She's worried about Huck. But she doesn't see slaves as human beings. And she doesn't treat slaves as human beings. That is how uh, what happens when we close our eyes uh, to reality in order to be comfortable. Most ordinary people, including myself, I'm not uh, saying they are ordinary, I'm not, uh, we don't like uh, that kind of disturbance. Uh, we don't like to um, uh, our peace to be disturbed. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to... Um I want to get to your call to action. You have a call to action in the book and at the end of this op-ed piece about book banning. I just want to read this sentence. Yeah. We cannot be indifferent. We must read and share and press into the hands of students any books we believe it is young people's right to encounter. What, what, what in your imagination, what, uh, what's the best case scenario? People rise up and read and share and, and what? Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. Of course, um, if we start doing this, then in the process, uh, um, the whole concept will be shaped, but I kept imagining at what happens if in every bookstore, in every library, in especially every school and college, uh, we have we create subversive books 
book uh, groups. And these book groups will discuss among themselves the banned books and decide uh, by, by themselves why these books are called banned books. And um, uh, also rise up to any other instance where there is assault or indifference towards uh, uh, books or towards art. Uh, and I hoped that they could connect all these different groups uh, through the Internet. Uh, so create larger and larger communities. Uh, who knows where it would go? Uh, but uh, there must be resistance. There can't be just this uh, um, sometime mumbling about it, you know. That's not enough. Well, a uh, good place to uh, end the conversation. A very uh, interesting, uh, important book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. The author is Asarna Fisi. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. While it may seem like an isolated, desolate desert island, Antelope Island in Utah's Great Salt Lake has been an important source of fresh water for humans going back thousands of years. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. If you were stranded alone on a deserted island, what's one thing you would take with you? Some smart people will say a few gallons of water, because even when you're surrounded by it, the salty water of the ocean isn't great for drinking. The same holds true for the isolated desert island right here in Utah, Antelope Island. From ancient archeological sites to 19th century Mormon ranches, Humans have long settled this island surrounded by water, yet desperate for access to it. Surprisingly, Antelope Island has always been brimming with life and precious resources. Located on the south end of Great Salt Lake, Antelope Island was named by explorer John C. Fremont for its pronghorn antelope population that fed him and his men when he mapped the lake in 1845. The western Shoshone peoples who visited the island for generations before Fremont did call it Parinbina, meaning elk breeding place. We have archaeological evidence that prehistoric predecessors to the Shoshone have been visiting the island since the Holocene period. One projectile point found at Mushroom Springs, a valuable source of fresh water, dated back 10,000 years. And at nearby Headbanger Cave, archaeologists found bison bone and evidence of meat processing from 3,300 years ago. In this remote desert island, indigenous people process sheep and pronghorn into valuable materials such as dried meat and grease before returning to their communities. When Mormon colonists arrived in Utah in the mid-1800s, they followed the freshwater resources on Antelope Island just like indigenous peoples did. In 1849, a Mormon convert from Virginia named Fielding Gar built a ranch on the island right by Mushroom Springs. Using all the precious freshwater he could, Gar raised cattle that helped finance the LDS Church's Perpetual Immigration Company, which paid for more than 100,000 people to relocate to Utah. From the cattle that grazed its pastures to the pronghorn hunted by people for food, 
Antelope Island is full of life made possible by water. Precious springs and human ingenuity make it an important stopping point in a surprisingly desolate landscape. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.